This is a little extra Lambo. Coming to you live from the palatial palace of the podcasting studios, South Hill, Spokane. Yeah. Got a great show for you today. We have Terry Nichols of Dry Fly Distillery coming on. We uh, recorded the show at the new facility, and it is under construction. So there is some clanging, and there's some banging, and there's some some saws going off, and a forklift moving around. Uh, We were able to uh, get our pauses just right, and in some of the, the... bigger movements and I was able to edit those out but you still will hear it so um, we are out on location so that was awesome I got to see the new facility and tour around Uh, they are getting a really really bigger facility that they desperately need Um, at the old place uh, they were having to move stuff around in the production area to do the canning and and all of that stuff, and it's tough to tough to run a business and do what you want to do if if you don't have the room. So they are in the old uh, the old Spokane uh, newspaper building now, and they've got plenty of room. And they might be uh, needing to expand a little bit on that one as well. But uh, um, for right now, they're they're making uh, a lot of progress. The new facility should be opened up the end of June, um, maybe first part of July, but they're they're shooting for the end of June. So um, please like the show, uh, give that four five star rating, uh, however you listen to it on whatever format, and follow along and hit that subscribe button. I give you Terry Nichols. It looks really good. There we go. Now I can hear you. You can hear me? Yep. Let's lift lift that up. I think I just loosened it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Somewhere in there. Well, about right. I've never done one of these like professional. No, this ain't this ain't professional. Well, I had my my <laughs> friend Bryce did one when we were doing sanitizer, but he just had a little recording machine that. Okay. He, oh, he had like a Zoom. A zoom machine with uh, probably two little, yeah, two little antennas right there. Something like that, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, we used to have one of those. We couldn't figure out how to get it to work, and then it would play out of this speaker and then that speaker, and we could never get it to sync up. So. Well, he did have to come back and redo it. So I'm not okay. sure that he had to figure it out. Either. <laughs> um. So, and then I left my notes in my truck. 
Oh, we'll go grab them. No, I, I have my, I, my ex-wife is using my truck right now oh, okay. to move some stuff, so well, I have her car. It. Yeah, I'm going to wing it. I have a pretty good idea of what I want to ask. So. Okay. <laughs> so um, we are sitting here at the new dry fly location on, do you want to give the address? 50? Uh, 1023 Riverside is the uh, entryway. Okay. Yeah. 1023 Riverside yeah. is the new, and when is this place going to open? Well, that's the million-dollar question. I don't know. I think we're we're shooting for sometime uh, mid June, certainly by July. But you know, the stills have been delayed. They're they're getting unloaded off of a cargo vessel this uh, Friday, so hopefully they clear customs and make it to Spokane uh, shortly thereafter. And then we have to assemble those, and that's kind of one of the more final pieces. That in the kitchen, all the kitchen equipment has to get installed. So it's going to be a full. Full restaurant as well? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. When we get going, we'll open as a tasting room, a craft distillery tasting room, and then shortly thereafter we'll add a, a beer wine endorsement and we'll have a full menu uh, in the in the tasting room. And then we'll have a bottle shop where you can do just spirit, straight spirit tastings and then also merchandise and bottle sales out of there. How much bigger is this place than the, than the last? From a production standpoint, it's about tenfold total capacity so we'll be able to do uh just a lot more whiskey production here like we'll we're, our current facility we're able to make one and a half barrels of whiskey a day and this facility will be able to make 10 barrels of whiskey a day uh, so that's a pretty substantial jump it's and a huge jump one of the the hottest markets right now is the whiskey market and uh, you know it's just uh we've had a little trouble keeping up quite frankly so yeah we've been rating our stocks that are in the barrel room a little faster than we like, so this will allow us to start putting it down, you know, faster than ever before. Is that because of COVID 2020? No, it's just uh, there's a, a huge craze for uh, all things American whiskey right now, and uh, we've expanded distribution. We've probably added uh, uh, 20 states here in the last two to three years, so we've expanded pretty rapidly in terms of our distribution footprint, so... We do some international. We export to a, a number of countries as well. So, And the primary interest outside the United States is not really in vodka and gin. It's more in uh, whiskey, and in particular, bourbon whiskey, really. So is what you're going to hear is we are in their new location, and there is construction going on down below, so you might hear some saws and whatever else. I'm going to edit that out uh, the best that I can, but you will uh, – Hear some of that. Um, how did how did you get into the into the business? And did you have anything going on before you started dry fly? I've been in the uh, alcoholic beverage business since uh, uh, 1991. I started out as a delivery driver for a small beer wine wholesaler, and then I moved around a couple different companies, some larger companies, and I did a lot of different things: branch managers and general manager jobs and in 2008, uh, the company that I was working for was, uh, was sold to another company. And myself and, and a friend of mine decided that we should open up a distributorship of our own. So we did that from 2008 to 2017, and then we ended up selling that company uh, to one of our competitors here in Spokane. And then after that, I stayed around for uh, about a year and a half, through the transition, and then Don Poffenroth, who was the founder of Dryfly, called me up 
we'd been a dry fly distributor for almost a decade and and so he called me up and and basically asked if I wanted to buy out his then partner Kent Fleshman uh, who was looking to retire and so I took that opportunity to to jump in and I ended up buying Kent out on May 31st 2018 which was day before my birthday which is June 1st so I always joke that uh you know, for my 50th birthday, I bought myself a distillery or at least a piece of It's a hell of a birthday present. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a big one for sure. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, how much have you learned from when you started your first business to then jumping into dry fly? Oh, uh, you know, dry fly is a different business. It's, uh, you know, I've always been on the distribution side of things, which has really helped me in terms of building out our distribution footprint, because I, I understand distributors, I understand how they work, and, you know, sort of how um, large distributors, medium distributors, small distributors are all positioned in the market and their various strengths and weaknesses. So I think it's helped me uh, develop a distribution network that works for our products, and uh, seems like we have a really good engagement with our distributors, and you know, in the COVID year, we tripled our sales. So 2020, we tripled 2019 sales. And so far this year, we're running um, uh, more than double. I'll say that already. So, and a large part of that has also been the, the introduction of our canned cocktail drinks. And that's really helped to drive a lot of new business and bring new consumers to dry fly because uh, it appeals to a younger demographic. And I think COVID maybe helped drive people to that, to the ready to drink cocktails. And the restaurants were selling them to go. And so it's turned out to be a, uh, a great addition to our business. And I think it's helped us to reach new consumers that were maybe not vodka, gin, whiskey consumers. But maybe now that they've discovered the Dry Fly brand, you know, they'll come back and buy our bottles as well. So it's been Do you want to tell everybody what your canned beverages are? Yeah, we make a, a wide variety of cans. We started out with Moscow Mule gin and tonic and a cocktail we call Spicy Lemonade, which is uh, dry fly vodka infused with jalapenos and then blended with a paracone lemon juice, uh, reverse osmosis water and CO2 really is all that's in that cocktail. Uh, it was sort of a takeoff on something we do in the taste room called the Herb and Legend, which was our one of our more popular cocktails. And then subsequent to that, we added Huckleberry Lemonade, which has just been a rocket ship for us. and uh, you know, been our number one seller by far. And we use real huckleberry puree uh, that we buy from Dorothy's Handmade in Boise, Idaho. Uh, and the drink is just absolutely fabulous, uh, especially in the summer, on a hot summer day. It's just great. And then we added uh, Bloody Mary, which uh, we did in conjunction with a local Spokane company called Spiceology. And they helped us develop the spice recipe for that. And so we have a Bloody Mary in the lineup now. And just uh, two weeks ago, we rolled out... Uh, a Greyhound, which is dry fly gin and grapefruit juice, really. And that's really carbonated water. That's all that's in that drink. And uh, so far, all indications are that uh, it's going to be another hit like Huckleberry Lemonade was. Was your was your processing different from going from your, your whiskey, vodka, um, bourbon to the can? Was it a different, completely different process? Or was yeah. it just the canning process was different? No, it, it's a completely different process. Um you know, we had to add other equipment that we didn't have before, like we had to add bright tanks where we uh, carbonate the beverages. Uh, we have a canning line which does 40 cans per minute, 
And now we have a new canning line going into this facility that'll take us to 100 cans per minute, so a pretty substantial upgrade. Plus, with the addition of new bright tanks and larger mixing tanks, we'll be able to substantially increase the canned cocktail production. But yeah, it's definitely been a learning curve, and uh, the processes are, are different, and the quality controls are different, and uh, we've learned as we went, and so far, so good. So when you when you started the what 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 was the catalyst to get you to start making the canned drinks? Was it just the expansion? Well, it was. Uh, it, this was back in 2018, right when I first joined the company, and it was at one of our first uh, company meetings. And Patrick Donovan, who's our our head distiller, he really wanted to do canned cocktails, and I had just come from the distribution world. I had some uh, inside knowledge on what the uh, numbers were on canned cocktails across the country and uh, how fast they were growing, uh, who the key uh, competitors were out there. And so I felt like it was something that we should pursue. And so, you know, I got my, my vote of endorsement right away. And so we basically empowered Patrick to start working on making these canned cocktails. And they're not seltzers. They're, they're not seltzers. They're different no, they're, than seltzers. Basically... We really wanted to capture what we were doing in the tasting room and put it in a can uh, so that people could take it on the go. And so that's kind of the double entendre there with uh, dry fly on the fly canned cocktails. You can take them on the fly, on the go, or like if you were fishing, you know, and caught, caught one on the fly. So it's kind of a fun play on words for the brand. And, uh, and yeah, we, we were surprised. Um, there's a huge market for low calorie out there right now. And the seltzers, vodka seltzers, and then the, the malt-based seltzers have really captured a lot of that. We've had the testing done on our cans, and most of our cans actually clock in between 130 and 165 calories, which is not that much more than the seltzers. But if you were to taste them side-by-side side with the seltzers, you know, ours are, are you know, much more full-flavored. And we use all-natural ingredients in them, you know, real juices, uh, no added sugars. It's really a, a pretty natural process. And so uh, we're pretty pleased with how the testing came back on the calorie content. Because um, we're, we feel like consumers could, you know, instead of 100 calorie seltzer, they could have 130 calorie Greyhound and it's a, it's a, a much more enjoyable cocktail to, to, to our taste, I, I should say that. And, you know, Spokane, a lot of the sounding, surrounding areas, Coeur d'Alene, Sandpoint, they're becoming more walking communities. So having that lighter beverage for them to drink is definitely a, appealing for those people. Yeah, for sure. And we, with those cocktails, you know, several other people were producing hand cocktails that were really sort of kind of pushing the limits on alcohol by volume. You know, some of them were clocking in at 12 13% on these canned cocktails. And we kind of went the opposite direction. We wanted to make cocktails that were a little bit more sessionable that you could have a couple. So ours range from, you know, 4.8 to 8% is our highest cocktail. So really uh, quite sessionable compared to some of the others that are out there. And you had mentioned the, the huckleberry. Yeah. They are fresh huckleberries. Are they from the area? Where do you get the huckleberries yeah, so from? Yeah, so that's a challenge, you know, because huckleberries come in in, you know, uh, July and August here in the, the northwest and in the mountains of north Idaho especially. And I didn't know, there's actually several different varieties of huckleberries or sub-varieties, I guess. And this company we work with in Boise, Dorothy's Handmade, she works with a lot of harvesters and buys a lot of huckleberries. But 
you really get one shot at getting the huckleberry, uh, the huckleberries, and then the subsequent puree that's made from them. You get one shot at that, and it has to last you the whole year. So, you know, it was kind of a stab in the dark the first year, and uh, uh, we were lucky that we made it uh, to the next season, and then we turned around and we've significantly upped the ante uh, for this coming year on, on what we're committing to purchasing. So, so you weren't outside Medellin Falls yourself picking no. the <laughs> picking the berries off the bushes? No, I, I have been when I when I was younger. I, my dad was always a big uh, fan of everything Huckleberry, so we used to go camping and up to Priest Lake, Medellin Falls area, and that. And and we used to go pick huckleberries. And I'll tell you, you know, they're they're expensive, but they're expensive for a reason because yeah. they're not very easy to harvest. It's no. very painstaking, time-consuming work. So um, the fact that we use real huckleberry puree in that cocktail, uh, I think, is it's just a it's sort of a dry fly way to do things and that the whole company is really founded on the ideal of using local ingredients from the immediate area and most of what we get is from within 30 miles so um, that's just kind of in keeping with who we are i guess what else what else do you get from this 30 mile radius uh we get wheat uh which we process into vodka and then the vodka becomes a uh, gin and then we make wheat whiskey which is what i'm sipping on right here and then uh, we make uh, a cask-strength version of the wheat whiskey and a port-finished version of the wheat whiskey. And then we get uh, corn for our bourbon from a farm that's about 20 miles to the west of us. Uh, the Hutterian Brotherhood grows the corn for us. Um, and then a lot of our other botanicals for the gin we get locally. Um, we have a very Washington kind of centric uh, gin deck. We have Fuji apple, mint, lavender, coriander. Uh, Yakima Valley hops and then the only thing we get from out of the area is juniper uh, that we get from Oregon only because nobody in Washington packs juniper so and we keep everything as local as we possibly can so you know things like grapefruit juice you know you can't really get that locally but uh, wherever we can we try and stay local and keep everything in the local community and that's a draw for your customers as well that want to stay local buy local that's another draw for them to come buy your guys' product, knowing that it's coming from within the area. Yeah, we certainly hope so. I mean, we just think it's good business to, you know, um, keep the money local and support your neighbors and the, your local farmers, and it all comes back to you in the end. So I think it's been a good business move. Um, I want to go all the way back to where the name Dry Fly came from. Obviously, it's for fly fishing. And I'm a fly fisherman. My best friend's a fly fisherman. Tell us how they came up with the name. Well, really, that was uh, my partner, Don Poffinroth, and uh, Kent Fleshman, who was the other original founder. They were on a sort of a corporate retreat of sorts, and they were uh, fishing the Gallatin River outside of Bozeman. And they were both kind of lamenting their corporate uh, lifestyles and jobs. And uh, they, were, they were drinking vodka on the trip. And they got to wondering what else they could do. And they thought, well, we could make a better vodka than this. And uh, so they started hatching a plan uh, to open a distillery. And when they came back to Spokane and they started pursuing that, they found out there was no license uh, to distill in the state of Washington. Nobody distilled anything since Prohibition. And so um, they basically uh, had to work with uh, a local senator at that time, I think Chris Marr, and they packaged up a bill uh, to introduce a license to create a craft distiller's license. And they put in that provision that you would have to 
uh, make your product from at least 60% Washington sourced ingredients. And so that, uh, that brought all the legislators on board. And in 2007, uh, Dryfly uh, was there at the signing of the creation of the craft distillers license and then opened up the first distillery in Washington State since Prohibition. And then the name is Stuck, and it's a yeah, very Don's, national Don's, name now. Yeah, Don's an avid fly fisherman, and uh, he really sees uh, the parallels between fly fishing and uh, small batch distilling, creating craft products, in that both require patience, persistence, perfection, good presentation, all, all the P's we call them. But uh, I certainly agree with that, that there is uh, certainly some parallels there, and focusing on every detail, every cut you make in the spirit and uh, when you're distilling and, you know, is, is very similar to fly fishing. And, you know, when you go out and you target specific fish and specific flies, specific times of year, you know, it's a very precise uh, thing. And so I think that the parallels are, are definitely interesting. Do you fly fish? I fly fish a little bit, mostly with Don, and not very well. Don is the only one that seems to catch any fish. But uh, catch more I, things behind you than you do in front of you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but but a bad day of fishing is better than a great day at work, as they say. That so, is correct. Uh, you go stand in a river in the mountains, and it's very you know uh, therapeutic. Uh, certainly, it's beautiful and a good way to unwind. Uh, my my best friend Brooks and I were going to go to uh, Rocky Creek which is right outside of Missoula, Butte, somewhere in between there. And we're going to spend uh, Fourth of July weekend there on the water and do a podcast there as well. But we're going to get some fly fishing in for sure. So I'm excited for that. We go over to uh, Rocky Ford over Moses Lake, and we'll fly fish there. And then ultimately we like hitting up the Yakima. My buddy's got a uh, drift boat to use, so he's learning how to use that. And so – it's, it's a progress of, of learning how to guide. He wants to learn how to guide and go from there. So yeah, take have, everybody else out. We have, a, we have a couple of vessels now that at least have some dry fly logos on. Uh, Don's got a dry fly uh, drift boat that is uh, full wrap with a cutthroat trout and dry fly logos on the end. And then his friend uh, has the raft, and so the raft has uh, dry fly logos on it as well. So. Uh, when Team Dryfly hits the river, you'll you'll know who we are. So, what are your what are your whiskeys that we have sitting there right there? Uh, right here we have uh, our wheat whiskey, which is the first whiskey we ever produced, and it's made from 100% soft white winter wheat that we get from uh, a farm called the Wasota Farm. Interestingly enough, 107 year old farm, and uh, Mitch's grandparents one was from Wisconsin, one was from Minnesota, so that's how they came up with the name. The Wasoda Farm. Wasoda. And so Mitch Engel grows the, the wheat for us, and uh, this spends minimum of three years in New American Oak, uh, number three char, medium toast. So uh, it's a very easy-drinking, soft whiskey bottled at 90 proof. And kind of our – we're the first in the, uh, first in the world to make 100% wheat whiskey. There's some other wheat whiskeys out there that uh, incorporate some other grains in the mash bill, kind of bourbon recipes upside down, if you will. They have more wheat than anything, but they have uh, barley or rye also in there. So we were the first to do 100% wheat. And then the other thing that I have here is the 100% uh, triticale whiskey, which we were the first in the world to do a, a triticale whiskey as well. 
triticale was historically a grain that was grown primarily for uh, livestock feed. Uh, it's fairly high in uh, starches and, and sugar contents, which make uh, for very good fermentations. And it is a grain, its heritage is from the 18th, from the late 1800s, I should say. Uh, it is a hybrid of wheat and rye, first hybrid in Scotland and also in Germany. So it gives you um, a bit of the peppery quality that you might normally associate with a rye, but then uh, that very soft, gentle uh, texture that you associate with wheat. So it really is kind of the best of both of its uh, parents, I guess. How important is the 100%? If everybody else is you know, 60%, like you said, and then they're mixing in other stuff, how important is the 100, 100%? Well, I think it just, uh, for us, I think it's nice to really focus on the single grain and what the attributes of that grain are. We certainly make things that are uh, you know, multi-grain mashes. Uh, we do make bourbon, and our bourbon is 55% corn and 45% triticale which is unlike any other bourbon recipe in the world. Most bourbon is, you know, a preponderance of corn with uh, barley or rye or wheat making up the balance of the grains in there. So uh, it's just something that's unique to dry fly. We also have a couple of Irish styles that we make with our farmer friend, uh, Tim Danaher, and uh, those are our more interesting uh, mash bills. One of them has barley, malted barley, wheat, and oats in the mash bill, and the other is just malted barley and unmalted barley uh, in the mash bill. So we do some other things where they're, they're combinations. So I would say the 100% is you know, important for any particular reason other than we just want to showcase the, the best of what these grains have to offer. Marketing. You can market the 100%. Yeah, you certainly can. What else goes into you finding these different wheats? Um, the triticale, is that what it was? Yeah, it was. So, yeah. And then how many more wheats are there out there that you can use? Well, there's certainly a number of clones of any particular grain. Uh, this triticale is uh, clone 99, which was uh, uh, dry fly worked with Washington State University to identify that. A particular clone as something that would work well in the Palouse with the climate in the Palouse, the soils in the Palouse, and all that. So um, I don't know that uh, that we're interested in doing any other grains at this point or anything else. I know some people out there made whiskey from quinoa and some other kind of <laughs> you know uh, wild things, but I think we're going to stick with uh, you know kind of the basics: corn, wheat, uh, some barley. Uh, and triticale is our really our one thing that's more unique to us. Although other people are starting to do it now, so we kind of braved the trail. But there's been some other people that are uh, starting to produce it. Some of those people were people that uh, got their initial training uh, through the dry fly distilling school, and so they came up here and learned about triticale from us. And so now there are our competitors out there in the field. But uh, it's all good. I think the more triticales there are out there, probably faster the category will grow and get some notoriety. With the with the vodka, that's where the original two guys started at. Yeah. Um, how has their recipe changed from that original batch or original few batches to where it is now? We haven't changed anything. Um, really? Yeah, it's pretty much been the same. It's 100% wheat, 
mash, and it's just about where you make the cuts on the heads and the tails, and really seeking to capture uh, the heart of the run. And then you let the grain speak for itself. And soft winter wheat from Washington produces a vodka that's got some butterscotch and vanilla tones to it. And uh, you know, if you if you do it right, uh, you really capture the heart of the run. It produces a very soft, easy to drink vodka. What is your favorite that you guys make personally? <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's hard to say. Depends on. Depends on the time of year. It depends <laughs> on my mood. I mean, in the summertime, I probably drink more gin uh, than I do in the wintertime. Uh, I really tend to like our triticale. I think it's a very uh, interesting product. Uh, it's got some complexities. It's got flavors of, like, uh, fresh baked biscuits and uh, white pepper spice accents and just a very interesting whiskey and makes great old fashions. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd say those are probably my two favorite. Crave Eats, Drinks, and Nightlife. That's our mid-roll read for this show. I just left there, had a bacon cheeseburger, and I had those cauliflower bites I was talking about earlier with the buffalo seasoning and the beer batter breading on the outside amazing 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 i've had buffalo bites before with the cauliflower and they these are so much better you will not be disappointed with these try them out say hello to jacob and the staff uh great food and drink specials all week long happy hour all day sunday as well as a free poker tourney every thursday and sunday uh each winner gets a gift card for crave check it out crave eats drinks and nightlife This segment is brought to you by Dry Fly Distilling, handcrafted award-winning spirits. The outdoors are calling. They said bring more Dry Fly. Check out their bottles of whiskey, bourbon, vodka, and the canned cocktails, the -the on-the-fly packable cocktails, as well as their merch. Get on dryflydistilling.com to check out all of their amazing products. So in, in 2020, we... Ran out of hand sanitizer, and you guys really stepped up to the plate to distill your own hand sanitizer. Tell us about that process and kind of what you guys had to do to make that happen. I am great at editing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So hand sanitizer, yeah, that uh, that was a... That was a very interesting period in our, our history, I'll say that. We uh, decided that we would uh, step up to try and uh, fill the void when all the shelves went dry and there was no hand sanitizer to be had and COVID was in its early stages and everybody was a little bit freaked out and you know there was runs on toilet paper and hand sanitizer at the store. So uh, hand sanitizer is fairly simple to make. You just need ethanol, which is what we produce. So, uh, to make hand sanitizer, we started with 190 proof vodka, which is uh, what we would make to put in our vodka bottles, you know, only we would proof it down to, to 80 proof to make vodka. Uh, as opposed to that, you end up um, mixing it with uh, some reverse osmosis water, uh, hydrogen peroxide, and glycerin. And that's all you have to do to make it. 
there were some hurdles that we had to clear with the, the FDA had to grant a temporary authority, so you had to get a temporary permit to do that. And the TTB had to agree to uh, not tax the goods that you produce for hand sanitizer uh, as beverage alcohol. And so those two things sort of allowed us to do it. And then we really just wanted to help out. So we started making it and started giving it away. And we, uh, in the early days, we put out a call for bottles on social media and some of the radio stations helped us out and said, hey, we need bottles, we need hydrogen peroxide, you know, we need glycerin. And people from the community stepped up and people were bringing us, you know, hydrogen peroxide that they had at home or they were uh, bringing us glycerin or they were, um, you know, bringing us bottles that we could fill with hand sanitizer. So it was really pretty mar remarkable to see all of these uh, people step forth to help. And so uh, as we went, we kind of refined the process. We were able to uh, get bottles commercially. And so we were bottling, you know, maybe 3,004 or 8-ounce bottles uh, every week at the distillery. And then, you know, on, on Saturday, we would have this big uh, public event and people would come down and, and, you know, you guys came down and helped out and, and uh, passed hand sanitizer into windows, you know, as people drove by on their, in their cars. And on Fridays, we did uh, first responders and healthcare so that they didn't have to contend with the, the mass of public on the Saturdays. Uh, we donated a lot to the county, uh, local hospitals, nonprofits. I mean, I think I was getting along the lines of 30 emails an hour uh, that first two weeks pretty much around the clock from people that needed hand sanitizer. And, you know, we didn't turn anybody away, so we, we uh, helped everybody out. And uh, it was it was a grueling process. I'll say there was, everybody was working seven days a week, but, and the community was super great about supporting us. So uh, we're super happy that uh, we were able to help out. And, and uh, you know, if it, if it happened again, we'd do the same thing. So. I know that that Saturday that we helped out, we started at 10 o'clock, and I think we handed out till 1 p.m., 12.30, somewhere in there, so two and a half to three hours, and everybody was grateful. Everybody, and then they would bring back bottles that they had. The problem was you guys can't clean them properly for the redistribution, so, yeah. um, you know, recycle them, I guess, but they were more than happy to, to come by and very thankful that th that was an option for them to get the, to get the uh, hand sanitizer. Oh yeah. The people were great. I mean, people left donations and you know, they came, we always told people, you know, people would call and say, well, how can we support you guys? And so on. And we just say, Hey, just, you know, buy our products. Really. That's all we ask. It's not, you know, we don't want to sell hand hand sanitizer, but we do want to sell our beverages. And so people would, they would come get sanitizer, and a lot of people would pull up in front of the window there and, and go do a little shopping and mm -hmm. you know, take home a bottle of gin or vodka. And, you know, it's like we always kind of joke that, you know, you got to sanitize outside, sanitize inside. So, uh, <laughs> Well, I bought a bottle of vodka that same day that we helped hand out. So I had a bottle of the hand sanitizer with the bottle of vodka, and I went, sniff, sniff, man. Which one's which? Because they were close. They were really close to the same smell. They were. It's funny <laughs> because it was the best smelling hand sanitizer. People would come back like, your hand sanitizer is just wonderful. It just smells so good. And uh, we would just kind of chuckle because 
that smells a lot like our vodka, which has those butterscotch and vanilla notes to okay. it. Okay. And so now, I, I kind of joke that I'm, I'm like a hand sanitizer snob. I'll go into a <laughs> restaurant that has a pump out front, and I'll pump it, and I'll be like, oh, that's horrible. That doesn't, you know, it just smells like a, a nail polish remover mm-hmm. or something along those lines. And uh, it was it was fun, yeah, a lot of uh, good good memories and good times from that period. Hopefully we don't have to go through that again. Yes. Um, but, you know, you got, like you said, you guys are set up. If you have to, uh, do do that again for the for the community. So that was an awesome outreach that you guys had done. So we're thankful for you guys. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate it. We appreciate you guys coming down and uh, putting your baseball skills to use tossing sanitizer <laughs> into people's cars. We were, we were making it a competitive game between that side of the road and <laughs> yeah. our side of the road. Yeah. So whenever, a, you know, a donation came in, we'd yell it out and make sure that everybody else knew that a donation had come in and just put our own little flair on it. So, And I know you guys had some of the shock guys came down. The shock came down, I think, three or four weeks in, in a row, and their season got suspended. Uh, they were supposed to be actually playing football during that period, but with COVID, nobody was playing football. And so um, I can't remember. I think it was Angela Rippon uh, who reached out for us, and and she was working with the Shock, and so she got the Shock to come down there multiple weeks. And she's Mark Rippon's daughter, of course. And then so at one point in time, we had Mark Rippon down there handing out hand sanitizer with us. So it's kind of funny. I've never thought – my wildest dreams, I'd be handing out hand sanitizer with a Super Bowl MVP winner, but <laughs> that's the way it worked out. And who else did you have? You had? Did you have Gonzaga? Gonzaga basketball down? No, we didn't have any, any Gonzaga basketball. We just had um, just a lot of other uh, friends and family, just people that came out and volunteered and just wanted to help. Okay. Um, do you want to tell us about your new facility? Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of work. I'll say that. <laughs> Once it, when, it's, when it's done, uh, it's going to be amazing. You know, uh, we were in. Well, tell us. St- let me stop you. Let's go to the old facility first, yeah. and kind of what's the reason for the move and the upgrade and everything. Well, at our old facility, we're just out of space, really. I mean, we're at full capacity production-wise, and we're really not set up well to do the canning over there. And so we have to roll the canning line out. It runs right down the middle of the distillery when we can. And so you can do very little else in there uh, when you're canning. And we're just kind of at max capacity there. And so we needed to move into a larger facility with more capacity. And we looked around at a lot of sites. And I came and uh, toured this site with uh, local real estate agent, Doug Bird, and uh, who brought me down here. and. And uh, this building is just amazing. The windows that wrap around the corner off Riverside onto Monroe here, uh, we have about 18,000 square feet. Right now we have about 11 where we're at in a combination of multiple facilities. And so uh, we'll have more space here than we have in both of our, our facilities now. We have our production facility and then offsite barrel storage. So we'll be able to bring all of that here under one roof. And at the same time, just the efficiencies will go up exponentially. The technology has changed since 2007 when the first stills were put in. And so we'll be able to do um, much more volume with about the same number of production people on the distillation side of things. And then the canning machine 
you know, will be 100 cans per minute versus 40, and it'll be in its own permanent home, and so we can can and bottle and distill all at the same time here. Uh, it's just going to be much more efficient. You can hardly drive a forklift through our current place, and every day we have to take about 22 pallets of miscellaneous stuff and put it out uh, in the parking lot, essentially on the side of the building, just to be able to function. Mm -hmm. And so uh, with this upgrade, uh, all of that goes away, and we'll just uh, have efficiencies that uh, we've, we've dreamt of for a long time. And then this space is also has expandability in that there's a matching 18,000-square-foot uh, footprint downstairs. And so that is vacant right now except for a couple of things. We have a walk-in cooler that we put down there. But we can basically uh, bite off chunks of that space as we need it. So if we need storage for cans, uh, for example, um, or empty glass or all those things, we can store that downstairs. Uh, there's a 10,000-pound freight elevator that connect the floors. So, um, and then the, the opportunity to really be in the downtown core was just super appealing as well. I mean, we're a couple blocks. You know, you got the, the Fox, you got the Knitting Factory, you got the Bing Crosby Theater all just around the corner from us, and we feel like it's going to be a great place for people to gather and have some great cocktails. And then uh, our other location didn't have a kitchen, so that's a, another big upgrade for us is people will be able to come and have dinner here or lunch or just appetizers or whatever they want to do. And uh, I think it's just going to be a, a very exciting sort of culmination of many years of hard work. Yeah, it was, uh, as we're having our conversation, I keep looking out here at the street and the people walking by it's got to be, I can, I like that view looking out. I'm going to walk around when we finish and go see what that view is looking in as well. So it has to be appealing for them walking by as well as you guys looking out to seeing the, the public. It's a nice view. It's, uh, and we, we uh, backlit all of the tanks. So all the tanks, you know, are the distillation equipment, kind of the production, wraps along that wall and those windows that look out on the street. And so we have lights shining on the tanks from the back side. So when you drive by at night, uh, the whole You're place, really going to see it. Yeah, it just shines. And uh, we don't even have the stills in yet. When the, that copper uh, and stainless steel get here, it's going to be even more amazing. But, uh, yeah, we're pretty, pretty stoked about the building. And then these windows here that you're looking at, um, these window frames are going to take a nearly 400 individual pieces of glass to finish, but these window frames were reclaimed from the uh, Kaiser uh, Mead plant. Oh. And so uh, they were getting ready to start demolishing some of those buildings out there, and so we were able to salvage these windows, and uh, local guy Chuck Silva, who does a lot of great work, uh, built an incredible sliding glass door we have at our current place, uh, he built all of these, took these frames and refurbished them. And so they're just, uh, you know, pulling a little piece of Spokane history uh, into the building as well. And then we'll probably do a couple things that will uh, sort of pay homage to the fact that this was the, uh, the home of the Spokesman Review uh, printing presses for so many years. Uh, there's some cool pieces that are downstairs that we're going to try and incorporate out there that will give people a little taste of, piece of the history i guess if you will as a as a as a foodie what is your guy what's going to be on your guys's menu or have you not kind of talked about that yet it's kind of in oh, the work still it's, or it's a it's a work in progress and it's uh we want to have an expansive uh, 
appetizer list for sure uh, so that you can have a great happy hour here and a lot of small plates uh, we also want to incorporate obviously some fish I'm big on wild caught salmon uh, we're probably going to have some trout dishes on there uh, we have these tandoori ovens that we uh, bought for the kitchen as well so we'll be able to do some really interesting things with chicken with beef uh, there as well so uh, it's not fully completed yet but do you have a head chef yet it, rest assured it'll be interesting do you have a head chef yet uh, we have not hired a, a chef yet we have a kitchen manager that's working on the menu right now and then we intend to hire a, a, a GM to oversee the restaurant operations and uh, we have that candidate already in place so it's starting to come together exciting yeah exciting um, what else would you like to promote and how can people find you online or on Facebook or anything like that well you know we just like we didn't have enough to do already. <laughs> uh, we decided this would be a good time to completely revamp the website too. So uh, the new website went live last week. So uh, it incorporates some new things that we've been working on for a year, including a lot of uh, product videos. Um, they give you more details about the products. There's also a video that covers sort of the dry fly brand that is uh, about a five minute video, but it's really cool, really well done. And then we have a lot of other uh, upgrades there. Shopping is a lot easier there uh, on the new website than it was before. And just the content overall has been upgraded and it's pretty exciting. And then our social channels, we're most active on Facebook and Instagram as Dry Fly Distilling. And uh, our head distiller's wife, McGraw, she puts all of that together and does a fabulous job with content on our social media. So. Uh, we're really happy about that as well. So, you know, we're we're coming into the uh, electronic age slowly, I guess. <laughs> how does how does shipping whiskey work? Are you able to ship it to other parts of the country? Not to consumers. That's a big issue in the industry. How about overall. how about military members? Is kind of what I was looking at because I got a buddy. He serves. Um, he's in the Minnesota National Guard right now, actually, but he just deployed. So I'd like to have a bottle of dry fly waiting for him when he got home. And I know I, I don't think that you can just take it down to UPS and say, I need to ship it over to him. So how does that, how does that work? <laughs> well, we can talk about that offline, I guess, <laughs> but uh, person to person is uh, definitely a challenge. Uh, as far as direct to consumer, which is what we would consider like shipping from dry fly distilling to a, uh, residential address around the country. There's only seven states that currently allow that. It amounts to 12% of the population. So as opposed to wine, which can direct ship to 92% of the population, in 48 states, uh, direct shipping of spirits is still really highly regulated. So What's the difference? Big, well, there's, there, really, there really isn't. And... Uh, and that's a, a big topic of discussion amongst the trade groups right now. And there's a lot of legislation, especially in the wake of COVID, there's a lot of legislation to change that because uh, a lot more people wanted to be able to order things direct to their home during COVID. And so you're seeing some loosening of the laws uh, in other states. But 
even in some of the states we could theoretically ship to, the licensing fees are ridiculous. Like in Nebraska, I think, is a 1500 annual licensing fee to ship direct to consumers. Well, we would probably never make that up in sales, so we just uh, we don't even really worry about it. We ship direct to consumer in Washington State, and uh, we'll watch as things open up across the country and kind of pursue those opportunities as they arise. So trying to find a location that'll sell for you is, is probably more cost-effective then? Yeah, for sure. And like you mentioned, Minnesota, we have a distributor in Minnesota. We're in, uh, we'll be in probably 42 states by the end of this year. And so uh, in a lot of uh, the country, we already have availability sort of on the ground locally. And you may be able to, in a lot of those states, you may be able to order uh, from your local store or through Drizzly or some third-party application where the fulfillment comes from a local liquor store. Um, that's becoming a big thing, too. So that's our primary access point to market is through distributors across the country. Well, I appreciate you having me come down. This has been – obviously, you guys are still under construction, and I will be back. Um, but just seeing the space and everything else that you guys got going on right now is – pretty exciting and then hearing about all the uh, updates that you guys are going to be doing is is also equally exciting so yeah well thank you fun times you coming down it's good to see you again and it was great to have you guys come and, and help out when we were passing out sanitizer and hopefully we'll get you and the crew down here when we're uh, open and we can show you a good time in our our new uh, restaurant facility down definitely so definitely terry nichols everybody thank you very much all right thank you Thank you, Terry, for coming on. Remember, hit that subscribe button, hit that follow button, give that five-star review on whatever format you're listening on. This has been A Little Extra Lambo with Terry Nichols.